Welcome to another episode of the Nice TESOL podcast, Shifting Teaching Paradigms. Every year, Nice TESOL hosts a conference where teachers, researchers, and administrators can collaborate, receive essential professional development, and connect with the purpose of enriching the lives of the students we educate. Every month leading up to the conference, we will have a featured guest who will shed light on this year's conference theme. It is our pleasure to have Dr. Cameron Kahn with us today. He has worked on projects around language learning in relation to citizenship and integration in the UK and Spain. He has his PhD from the University of Birmingham in the UK and the University of Melbourne in Australia. He is also the author of Becoming a Citizen, Linguistic Trials and Negotiations. His interests include language assessment, notions of becoming, and security. Dr. Khan is a Marie Sklodowska Curie Fellow at the University of Copenhagen and is leading a European Union-funded project on language policy and countering violent extremism in the UK and Denmark. So hello, Dr. Khan. I'm so happy that you were able to join us on our podcast today. Um, first, I'd like you to just tell us a little bit about your role in education and what led you to that role. Uh, sure. Thank you for having me on. Um, so it's a, it's a real, real privilege to be here. Uh, so I uh, come from a background where I was an adult uh, language teacher. Uh, so for migrants in the UK, so we, this is what we would classify as ESOL. I'm, I'm not sure in, in the US the distinction. So um, I was teaching uh, refugee and uh, migrants uh, for some years. And um, as part of my professional development, I decided to do a master's. And from there, um, it led to a PhD uh, where I looked at how um, how people become British through the language requirements that we have here, uh, in, oh, sorry, in the UK. And from there, I had a kind of growing interest. Um, the nature of where I lived in Birmingham, my home city, uh, meant that um, as a Muslim, uh, it was we were sometimes a community under surveillance. And so that um, led me to an interest in, in kind of notions of surveillance and, um, and being a suspicious community. So, um, you know, but the day-to-day -day experiences were quite different. And so that, I was always interested in that. And so that's led to me to my current role, which is uh, a Marie Curie uh, fellow in Copenhagen, where I'm looking at language education um, using a kind of surveillance program that we have for counter extremism in the UK called Prevent. And uh, there is a program in Denmark, which includes a language component uh, around, and you'll never believe what this is called. It's called a ghetto policy. It's <laughs> so, what? Um, really? <laughs> so they can how do they justify this name? Um, well, that, I'm still learning about this, but uh, it's actually changed name, but it's ghetto policy in 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 um, spirit now rather than name. Uh, but the um, logic behind it in Denmark was that they felt that Muslims were not integrating well enough. And so what they did was they decided to target particular areas, um, which were basically just straight out called ghettos. They named them as ghettos and their particular areas and um, their areas which happen to have a lot of migrants and a lot of Muslims. 
And um, the language element comes in because one of the things they do is that they check the language level of really small children. Um, I mean, as in like two years old uh, children. And um, they, the logic is, is that they are supposed to have a particular exposure to Danish because that's seen as kind of a key, key kind of component of integration. So I'm actually, because of my background with adults, I'm actually interested in the parents and the type of uh, kind of things that they have to do. Maybe, maybe I'll find out a bit more about that. Wow, you know, something that stood out when you were explaining what you do at this point is becoming, uh, <laughs> becoming British. I think that's that's what you said, right? Yeah. So, and then you said you mentioned about integration and and not integrating enough, right? And so this idea of like becoming British or let's say becoming American or um, becoming a citizen of uh, whatever nation you you have joined. You know, I think that it, it shouldn't mean an erasure of your background, uh, yet, you know, when you, you make that statement to become something, it makes you think that you are eliminating what you were before. <laughs> so I, I think it's really important to be able to make, you know, to, to highlight that and then to understand how we can not look at it in that way or how uh, the methods behind um, uh, allowing someone to become a citizen can not be, I guess, so harsh in terms of this idea of becoming, uh, therefore erasing, um, you know, what was your initial or your, your, your base in terms of how you identify yourself. Yeah. I mean, um, I'm personally, I've always been interested, particularly through my work, of the idea of becoming, and there's different forms of becoming. We've got mm -hmm. kind of this uh, solid pathway, this kind of tunnel, which maybe the government sets up, you know, that communities work in a very specific monolingual, you know, function uh, in that way. And, you know, that's one type of legal becoming, for example. Um, but then, you know, where do the aspirations of those people going through the process come into that and what they want to become? Mm -hmm. And, you know, uh, the other thing is it always assumes, and I mean, this is, you know, picking up on what you're saying, um, it assumes that people um, have no sense of citizenship or no mm -hmm. community and that they're just learning it, you know, through this process. And, you know, when we say things like that uh, English, learning English is a British value, well, it assumes that, you know, I, I don't think in, there's anything wrong with having values, but when you kind of put the the kind of uh, boundary of British values, it's it's saying, well, who's not British, and you know, why are they not British? And it kind of puts a kind of arbitrary kind of marker there, uh, which is linked to language. So, um, yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, and obviously, my just from my experience, and I'm sure of many educators, you know, people have a lot of kind of rich things that they can bring to make you know a community a lot better. Wow, and something else that you said uh, before that really struck me was this idea of two-year-olds and, you know, assessing a two-year-old in terms of their language capabilities when their L1s are not even fully formed. I, I think that that's, uh, <laughs> uh, 
how do you know anything about how they go about doing that? And then what is the process for adults? Because that's a, that's what you said you were kind of interested in. Yeah. So one of the one of the really nice things about the fellowship that I'm doing is that there's kind of space for areas that you're you're kind of new to in a way to develop that. Mm-hmm. And so obviously I'm very familiar with the UK context. I'm less con- uh, familiar with the Danish context. And um, I, I mean, I've asked around about this and, you know, who are the testers and what do they do? And I, I'm kind of not really getting clear answers in that respect. So I'm hoping that by dedicating some resources and time to this, I can start maybe demystifying these things and, and seeing kind of how these um, policies are implemented um, in, in the everyday level. So, um, you know, I can always, I'm happy to update when I, when things are clearer. Uh, but, okay. mm-hmm. but I think the fact that even these kind of discourses are circulating, mm-hmm. I think tells you a lot about the kind of prevailing sentiment and uh, the kind of political atmosphere of learning languages in this context. Wow. And so Cameron, you are going to be uh, speaking. You're going to be one of our keynote speakers at our upcoming conference. And so the conference theme is shifting teaching paradigms, examining inclusive dynamic practices. So how would you actually interpret this theme? And then how would you kind of tie in your work to this theme? Yeah, so, you know, when I read that uh, of shifting uh, teaching paradigms, you know, obviously we're, we're looking at kind of how things may change. But I think the first thing I, I, I when I was reading this and I've been preparing is, is thinking of we all have kind of inheritances professionally and with that within disciplines. And we kind of ha- inherit ways of doing things or ways of thinking. And I think one of the things that I'm, you know, really interested in, and, you know, I really want to, kind of highlight is you know what happens when we re-examine some of those inheritances so um you know for, for example the the role of english you know rather than okay yeah we know it's a tool for you know immigration that you know facilitates this thing that they call integration but you know where does that sit in terms of what one of the things that i tend to um think about in english especially in the case of uh, the uk is that English was something that expanded boundaries into other countries through colonialism and empire. Now that same kind of, those same kind of linguistic borders are being, you know, retracted into kind of national citizenship, where it almost becomes this tool of exclusion. Mm. So, you know, I think by in, in kind of seeing things in those terms, perhaps of almost kind of a neocolonial um, kind of uh, continuation of uh, English within this within migration context. Um, I think that's interesting. And then from then, you know, once we understand um, how that's affecting our policies, our teaching today, then you know, the next shift is then how do we kind of reimagine possibilities for the future? So um, that's why I was thinking, yeah, that's how I interpreted it. Wow. And so, um how do you really see this playing out? I mean, in an ideal scenario, um, how would this reimagining take place and what would be its effect? Sure. Uh, Well, one of the things um, is around better understanding uh, this idea of integration. Yes. Uh, Mm -hmm. I think that's quite fundamental because, um, I mean, one of, I mean, kind of touched upon this, the idea of integration then is central to 
the national community in the British context and other nationalities, but let's, let's stick with that one. Mm -hmm. um, so that, that the idea is that the national community um, needs to be kind of cohesive, it needs to have the same language, and that's how we create a safe and stable national community. So then there's kind of two directions. Uh, you know, I, in my work, I've taken this. One is through the citizenship testing, but the, the idea of community cohesion then becomes a pivot towards counter extremism because safe societies rely on, you know, in, in government uh, policy, they rely on a stable notion of language. So um, really, we need to think about the kind of dismantling some of the the socio-political apparatuses that uphold all of this. And one of those, for example, is the language test. Um, so there's this idea of justice within language testing. So you can have a fair test, which is the idea that, you know, you can we can all take a very similar test under similar conditions, but the idea of just justice then takes us into the realm of, well, why do we need this test? Do we really need it? And is it is it just? So things like abolishing the citizenship test is one way forward, for example. And um, I, I have, I think I just mentioned it briefly at the beginning, um, but we have a, an educational surveillance program in the UK called Prevent. Mm -hmm. uh, also thinking about dismantling the ways that that kind of stigmatizes um, learners. Okay, great. And so uh, what is the effect that you think um these changes or these shifts in paradigms would actually have on these societies? Well, we know that um, the way language is is positioned often reflects, you know, particular groups in some ways. And, um, you know, obviously there's limits to what we can do and what we can try to do, but I think um, at least re-examining the logic behind these tests, for example, mm -hmm. and... Um, thinking of ways of using language to actually support people rather than as a tool to kind of, you know, Jack Derrida talks about how it's uh, an ambiguity between belonging and, and uh, belonging and discrimination. So are we using language because we think it's a way to support people to become the best you know, citizens they can be, or are we using it as a way to discriminate so that some people become citizens a lot easier than others? And we have to understand as well that language tests are not only used in the UK, but we have a, what's called a family reunification test, uh, which is aimed at those who are from outside the European Union, at least before Brexit, and outside of the European Union and um, aimed at people from non-English dominant countries. So if you just imagine a map in your head of the world and you take out Europe and you take out English dominant countries, well, what countries are you left with then? And I would... I'd be fairly certain that'd be Asia, um, South America, Central America, Africa, uh, in particular. So there's a very racialized element to this. So right. we're, we're, we're trying to kind of pull the kind of discriminatory um, component really of language used in, in this respect. Wow, I really love uh, what you said about language as a means to support people rather than to exclude them. Um, and I noticed uh, that in your bio here, it says that you have an interest in language security context, and you just mentioned this notion of safety. So uh, you know, I, I just want you to elaborate a little bit more on this idea of uh, what does this mean, language in security contexts? Yeah, sure. So um, there's various con contexts that I'm, I'm kind of thinking here. 
so a lot of it is actually just rooted in experiences that I've seen from where I'm from um, and through life and uh, seeing what's going on. So one of the things when I talk about, for example, the test is that at the time it was introduced, it was linked to kind of uh, violent uprisings in, in we, we had riots in three cities in the north of England in 2001. And they involved mainly British, Pakistani, Muslims uh, and white far-right extremists, basically. And one of the causes that the government uh, kind of diagnosed for all of this was the fact that there wasn't a common language. So it was kind of putting the blame on migrant communities. And they were saying wow. that this was a source of tension. Mm. And then what happened was we had 9-11 as well, a few weeks later, mm. same summer. And so what that effectively did was frame, you know, the kind of same community as a kind of source of potential danger. So they brought in the idea of having citizenship and you know, that would be the focus of uh, keeping us you know, safe and stable. Yeah. Obviously the social values that attach now to these kind of tests have this kind of you know, protection against violent extreme uh, you know, violence. So it kind of became like this form of border control almost. It became this kind of border that was, was created. So that's one element of, um, of um, security there. That the mm. values attached to a policy to a test, and this kind of it, what it does, it effectively draws in teachers now to be on the front line of all of this by teaching English. So that's one. And then the the other aspect, I mean, there's various, but we have a program in the UK called Prevent, which is aimed effectively uh, trains education staff to detect signs of radicalization, and it's. I mean, it's 95% of the referrals are generally incorrect, but it tends to stigmatize particularly racialized, racially minoritized communities and particular Muslims in this respect. So whether people like it or not, education gets drawn into this kind of counter extremism kind of, um, you know, battlefield really. And that includes mm -hmm. language educators as well. So those are the type of things that I, I've been really interested in. Wow, and a lot of times, um, you know, as as teachers, as educators, we may not really think of our roles as being, uh, I, I want to say, kind of um, politically motivated, right? So a lot of the things that we end up teaching and maybe the ways that we end up teaching things um, have some kind of really sociopolitical uh, impact. But I, I think a lot of times, um, you know, when we're just kind of in the field and doing what we're doing with students, we may not actually consider those things. So I think it's really important that these aspects are highlighted um, for educators. Um, okay, so I wanted to ask you if um, everything comes to light, right? If we're able to shift in a way that we're able to really use language to support uh, our students to support people, as you've mentioned, um, and, and to really look at people in general in a more holistic way. Um, what kind of impact do you think this is going to have in terms of education, let's say, in terms of what's going on um, on the front lines in the classrooms? Sure. So the thing I always think about is, one of the ways, especially in the context that I, I work in, is there's a kind of lot of limiting factors about language. 
So there's a kind of labyrinth, for example. Um, so this is slightly away, but within adult language education, of kind of certificates you have to pick up to be able to go into, you know, university or uh, vocational studies, whatever kind of migrants want to do. Uh, but I often try to think in other ways, which is what would happen if we said to our students, what's the best way we can do things? You know, what's what's the best way to make you the the person that you want to be here, um, the citizen you kind of want to be, uh, regardless of these kind of, you know, highly political kind of um, <clears throat> policies. And so um, for me, that means um, really put, putting them at the center. Mm. And obviously, a student is not just a learner, but they're a human being with, you know, feelings of belonging, which I think is really, really significant. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, this requires really empathic kind of understandings of, uh, of, of the, the learners that we deal with. So, yeah, I think it means moving beyond um, kind of, it's effectively putting people's aspirations first and trying to work out how, how we can support that. The difficulty always with, at least with what I do, is that the political nature means, for example, something as, as fundamental as the funding for the classes becomes this really politically charged thing about uh, exam completions and level, you know, what level you're at and what level you can do next year. So I guess it's really person-centered that I would hope uh, for the future. And, you know, that it's one of the things about becoming that we talked about earlier is other people sometimes depend on your sense of becoming, like your family, your friends, uh, your community. Um, so sometimes when we talk about an individual's becoming, it's not only them that's actually involved, there's a very kind of plural aspect to it. Right, right. Okay. Um, so, I mean, a lot of what you do, it's, it sounds like it's, it's really fulfilling in terms of understanding or trying to really get a grasp of... Um, what what people really need in these situations and so uh it might be difficult to pick out but what would you say is the most fulfilling part of what you do i would say that the most fulfilling thing for me is actually kind of working with or finding communities of like-minded people and having a kind of common purpose with them i think one of the things that can happen um, is a kind of reproduction of everything that's happened to be happened before as a form of kind of success almost. You know, the, the people who are best at reproducing particular ideals or inheritances, like I said earlier, uh, you know, that's some sort of beacon of success. And I think I'm more interested in, you know, what can we do to transform these things? What kind of legacies can we do to replace the inheritances? And I think when you meet really like-minded people, it's, you know, instead of like one light bulb going off, you've got like 10 because you're, you're, you're a community now and you can build together. So for me, that's the best thing. Wow. And that's excellent. And I think that um, this type of collaboration will really take us closer to a future where we are more focused on, um, on the needs of the students that, that we're servicing. So um, finally, um, where can people find you? Where can they find your work? Do you have any upcoming projects that you would like to make our audience aware of today? Yeah, so I probably my uh, I'm quite active on Twitter. So I have a Twitter account called at security ling. So security, the word security and L-I-N-G. 
uh, I wanted to call it security linguist, but it, it didn't give me enough character. So if you imagine it, goes up the <laughs> and then um, through that, you can see that I have, I've just started a project um, for my new project, a project account there as well. Uh, so those are those are usually my most active ways, and uh, yeah, through there there are other links to to various things that I'm working on. So, for example, I always try to book a book that I've really enjoyed, uh, usually usually around um, kind of language. I usually put one up every Friday, and I try to I try to find ways to uh, to bring value to others. So. Okay, great. So we will be on the lookout every Friday for uh, your latest read. Okay. Um, all right. So thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Khan. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for joining Nice TESOL's Shifting Teaching Paradigms podcast. Tune in next month for more powerful TESOL educator talk.